Good morning. How you doing? I'm glad you joined us this morning. I'm glad to be here. Um, hey, just want to say special, a special welcome to those of you who are maybe here for the first time. Uh, I'm always just thrilled to see new faces. And uh, if I haven't met you before, I'd love to meet you afterward. My name is Joe. I work here um, as a pastor. I work specifically with college age and young adults. And um, I have just loved being a part of this church. And so uh, why don't you pray with me, and then we'll dive into what I think God wants for us to, to look at this morning. Father, we are just uh, so thankful that you are our one defense and you are, Jesus, you are our righteousness. We're thankful for that this morning. God, we're thankful that we can open your word and be encouraged this morning to, to, to be, uh, come more like Jesus. And we pray that you would do that in our lives, that you would, you would have your way in us, that there would be an openness uh, in our hearts to just embracing what you want us to learn this morning. And so we just trust, Holy Spirit, that you're the teacher and that you're going to teach us what you want us uh, to learn. And so we just lift up our lives to you in Jesus' name. Amen. I just also want to say uh, hello to those who are following online. We're glad you're with us as well. So do you remember what it was like to be in love? You know, this is the time when you're going to kind of get an elbow jam from the the person next to you. I remember back to when I first met my wife. Uh, We were freshmen in college, and and, uh, uh, she had an 8 o'clock class. I think she had all 8 o'clocks, and I had a messed up schedule, so I had like a bunch of 10 o'clock classes. And I would wake up at 7, and and I'd grab uh, breakfast with her in the dorm calf. And then in the evening, a lot of times, I would hang out with her in the hallway, and we would talk long into into the wee hours of the night. And, um, and then after she went to bed, I'd go down and I'd start my, my schoolwork because I kind of was a procrastinator. But sacrifice hardly felt like sacrifice back then. Yes, I was exhausted in my classes, but I was living on love. Uh, it, it just almost came natural. It was effortless. You, you probably remember those days, don't you? Yeah you, you were, yeah, you better remember those days. You were overwhelmed by the love that you had for this other person. And, and you would just walk around uh, singing along with Motown. I've got sunshine. On a cloudy day, Michigan winners, you ain't got nothing on the sunshine that I have in my life. And then you got married and things were going really well until life happened. Your work became demanding. Kids came. Kids' activities overwhelmed you. Kids entered high school and you had to get a second job to pay for the shoes for your kids' activities. Maybe there wasn't as much time for a little turtle dovin. And serving the other person started to feel a little bit more like a chore, routine busyness, going through the motions. You see, there's a great parallel that we're going to look at today between the way you felt in the early years of your marriage and how God talks about your relationship with him. If you were to flip to Revelation chapter 2, and we're going to go there just for a moment, you'd read this. John, the writer, writes this. Uh, He writes a number of positive things at first to uh, to the church at Ephesus, but then he writes this. This is what God says to this church. He says, but I have this against you, that you have left your first love, Jesus. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first. So I want you to hold on to that passage and the idea of returning to your first love as we're going to connect that thought with a section from 1 Thessalonians. Now, if you've been with us, you know that Mark has is over a year into the book of Romans. This is week three in 1 Thessalonians. And as we've started to look at 1 Thessalonians, we, we've started to see that there's some awesome things going on in this church. 
So much positive that I'd like to title the, 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 the letter that Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica, the first letter, the church at her best. This is a young church that so grabbed the hold of the gospel that it led them to a deep repentance from idols. So much so that every other church in uh, this area was impacted by their repentance, by their turning away from idols, from their worshiping of false gods. I mean, they are, the people were repenting of spending too much time golfing and not enough time with their family. They were tearing up credit cards and living within their means. They were burning their romance novels and putting accountability software on their computers and their, their, their devices to, to, to turn away from immorality and impurity. They were so in love with Jesus that it moved them to obedience. These people were hardcore. They were so hardcore because of the gospel message that again, this church became an example to all the other churches throughout this region. Jesus was their first love and it showed in their lives. Their mentor was Paul, and, and, and he would say that Jesus was his first love too. He was their example, and so they imitated him and his faith. And so we're going to look at what it might look like to have Jesus be your first love today. And so if things sting a little as we move through this, just know that as I've been preparing this, I have felt a constant sting. It's almost like as I'm preaching this to you, I'm preaching it to myself as well. And so we pick up in chapter two, starting in verse nine, and this is what Paul writes. He says this. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers. And that's Paul's really first thought for us it's this, when Jesus is your first love, the proclamation of the gospel is the highest priority. Now, before we can proclaim this message, we've got to know what it's all about. Like, I sat in a church for a long time and had no clue what this message was. And so what's it all about? Well, this message is the good news that Jesus came to die on a cross for sinful people like you and me. And it was on the cross that he, it, that he took our sin away from us and gave us his righteousness. That's, that's a, there's a, a, a theological kind of framework that a lot of uh, theologians use, and it's called the great exchange. It's the idea that God took our sin from us and imputed or gave us his righteousness. And so one of my favorite passages in the New Testament says just this, God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to become sin for us, so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. For those who believe in him and trust in him, he makes them righteous, able to stand holy and blameless forever before a perfect God. By the way, there's no other world religion whose message can touch the message of the Christian faith. Every other world religion is spelled do. You have to do something to get to God. You have to do something to make God like you. But see, the Christian faith is totally different. It's spelled done, where Jesus did it all. He paid it all so that we could be with him, not only in this life, but in the life to come. 
I love this modern day hymn. It says this, Jesus paid it all. All the him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed me white as snow. Okay, so that's the message that Paul proclaimed. But what stands out here isn't just what he proclaimed, but how he proclaimed it. Paul, in, in this situation in his life, he had a day job. And a day, the day back in this time frame was considered sunup to sundown. So if you go back into the middle of the summer in Michigan, that means the day probably started at 5.30 in the morning and ended at 9.30 when the sun set. And so a, a, after Paul was done with his day job, he would take off his apron and he would pick up his scrolls and he would put his feet to the task of proclaiming the gospel message in this city. That's what he meant by labor and hardship. He worked hard both day and night. I imagine that meant he spent a lot of time helping those who weren't Christians to be able to come and put their faith in Jesus. And then he spent a lot of time helping these either new or, or young Christians, help de de developing a foundation, something they could would stand on and, and, and move forward with a foundation for their life. Now, Paul, you know, he didn't always work a separate job. At different points in his ministry, he received support from various churches. But here in Thessalonica, he was bivocational. In other words, he had two vocations. And he was bivocational for a reason. See, there were false prophets and false apostles in this time frame, just like there are today. But Paul talks about them in other places in the New Testament. If you wanted to do a little bit of homework, write down 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and go home today and read about this. But the reason Paul chose to be bivocational was to set himself and his ministry apart from these false teachers, these false apostles. He didn't want people linking his ministry with theirs. And so in our day, it would be like not wanting to be connected with the faith healing movement of people like Benny Hinn. You know, he and others like him are a part of this prosperity gospel movement where they're literally making millions and millions of dollars off of people. Most of them are poor Christians. And he's bringing disgrace to the name of Jesus. And so I would do anything to separate myself from being linked with Benny Hinn. And that's exactly what Paul was doing in being bivocational. But see, he was willing to do it because Jesus was his first love. Love is powerful and it, and it motivates. When you're captivated by the love of God, you're willing to do anything for him. And so working day and night was no biggie for Paul. Laboring to proclaim the gospel wasn't this huge sacrifice for him. In fact, when you read the New Testament, you really get a sense that for Paul, serving in the gospel was a no-brainer. I mean, he remembered what it was like to live life apart from Jesus. He remembered those days before Christ. He saw the bigger picture. He realized that apart from Christ, people are enslaved to the evil one. And apart from Jesus, people will perish and spend a Christless eternity. And these people, many of them are our friends. They're the people in the cube next to yours at your office. They're the people that you play pick up basketball with over your lunch hour at the Mac. They're the people that live next door to you in East Lansing or in Hazlitt or in Williamston. They'll be at your family Christmas party this year too. See, the lostness of mankind and the gospel message were on the forefront of Paul's mind. 
He couldn't shake the thought. It focused his life and all of that because he aligned his life and his heart with the heart of God. In another place in the New Testament, he said this. He said, I've become all things to all people so that by all possible means, I might save some. And Paul knew he wasn't the one that was doing the saving. He knew it was the spirit of God. But he said this, I said, he said, I, did, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in its blessings. So the gospel was a big deal to Paul. And it was a big deal to Paul because it was a big deal to Jesus. The closer Paul walked with Jesus, the more Jesus just rubbed off on him. And so Paul would say that the risen Savior was his first love. But you know what's really cool about what he writes here? He doesn't just say that gospel proclamation is a highest priority. He also says to this church that his character and his life line up with this message. He just puts it out there. He says, hey, you guys saw my life. You're witnesses of how we lived among you. And so can you say that about the people that you live around? There's something super powerful about that. Hey, Paul, you know that Jesus you keep talking about? We see him in your life. You're so different in how you ride your chariot. You know, so many people are filled with Roman road rage, but not you. You're gracious on the road. How you talk to people you swing your hammer with, man, so many other people, they just drop the F-bomb every other word. But Paul, you actually build people up with your words. Paul, to be honest with you, it's just straight up weird. But there's something about your life that we're drawn to. Paul, most people just live for themselves. But it's so obvious that you're living for other people. You're so sacrificial in the way you serve us. Hey, Paul, again, I know this is a little weird to say as a guy, but I know that you actually love me. We know you're not perfect. Because you tell us there's only one who is, and you keep pointing us to him. We get it. But you've operated with such high integrity that we're drawn to your life and we're drawn to Jesus and this gospel message because of you. Now, I don't know exactly what they witnessed, but Paul also said that God was his witness. And so now we're talking not only about outward, public, invisible things, but we're also talking about the hidden things, the things that would be done behind closed tent curtains, thoughts, and motives. And Paul said that you and God know how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behaved toward you believers. That is super compelling. I mean, the message combined with a life well lived, it's really hard to argue with that, isn't it? And it's redundant to say this, but it needs to be said. The proclamation of the gospel can't just be in words only. It has to be in the way we live our lives as well. And the proclamation of the gospel can't just be in the way we live our lives. It has to be with our words as well. And, that, and what we see here again is that this is what Paul modeled for the church in Thessalonica. It's what he's modeled for us today. And so because Jesus was his first love, the proclamation of the gospel became a highest priority.
Let's keep going, verse 11. Paul says this. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and exhorting or imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And that's really Paul's second thought for us, is that when Jesus is your first love, obeying the call to make disciples becomes a reality in your life. I love how Paul uses this, this beautiful illustration of a father. And he says, we were like a father as we lived among you. And what Paul's really getting at here are, are the basics of what discipleship is all about. Discipleship is kind of this process where Christians just help each other grow up in the faith. And so sometimes it's older, more mature people helping younger, less mature people. Sometimes it's just peers helping each other grow. Sometimes it's a more formal process. Sometimes it's a less formal process. But the goal, the end goal is to spur one another on toward becoming more like Christ. And Paul uses three words here as he talked about what he did with these people. He says this, he says, we exhorted and we encouraged and we implored. Now the Greek words for exhorted and encouraged are actually synonyms, which, which means that they either are the same or they have very similar meanings. And so when I think of the word exhorted, I don't know what comes to your mind, but I think of someone challenging me, but in a way that kind of feels like they're like kind of hammering me over the head with something. But see, when, when you actually look at the Greek word here, there's a little more nuance to it than just to challenge someone. In the Greek, the word for to exhort is this word parakaleo. And the sense of this word is to earnestly support or encourage a response or action. And then the Greek word for the word to encourage is this word parametheomai. And the sense of that word is to alleviate sorrow or distress, to give emotional strength to. And so if you look at these as synonyms, to exhort and to encourage has a sense of walking alongside of someone where you're, you're so for them that you support them and you nudge them and, you, and you're nudging them toward action, but you also give comfort and emotional encouragement at the same time. You become kind of this cheerleader in their life. And so is there anyone in your world who could use this kind of person in their life? How about your kids? You know, your kids are your number one priority as your disciples. So do they need someone who is an, an encourager and a, a cheerleader in their life? You bet they do. How about someone in your small group? Is there someone in your small group who needs a person like this in their life? Oh, I'd, I'd almost guarantee you there is. How about in the, the high school or the college age group here at, at New Hope? Is there someone in that group of people that needs a person like this? I'll tell you, everyone needs someone like this in their life. Okay, and then there's the, the last verb there, and it's the, the verb for implored. The ESV uses the word charged. The Greek word here is martuderomai. And the sense of this word, this is how Logos, the kind of a scholarly software says it. It says, to, it, the sense of this word is to solemnly assert something, offering first-hand authentication of the fact, often concerning grave 
or important matters. And so I know that's kind of way, kind of that's high shelf thinking. I'm gonna try to make, make that a lot more on the lower shelf for you here. This is kind of how I put this in layman's terms. This word really gives a sense of sobriety. Kind of a somber tone about something very important. And so Paul uses all three of these words to describe what he did with the Thessalonian believers. He came alongside of them. He nudged them and supported them. He comforted and gave emotional cheerleading. And then he pointed them to some sobering realities. And all three of these verbs were used to talk about how Paul helped these believers walk in a manner worthy of God. Oh, great. Okay, so great. So what does that mean for us? Well, that means that to be involved with helping make disciples, you're gonna need to get your hands dirty. You know, Paul walked alongside these people. He didn't just preach to them and then move on to the next city. This was his nightlife. He had his day job, and then when he was done with that, this is what, for what he did for fun in the evenings. He spent time, life on life with people, individuals, and really, this is the pattern we see all over the place in the New Testament. Disciples aren't a product that are mass-produced. No, because each one of you is unique in your strengths. And each one of you is unique in your brokenness. And so the last point we need to make about this section of text is to take a moment and think about where in your life you need to be exhorted and encouraged and implored to walk in a manner worthy of God. But to do that even further highlights the point that this is a life-on-life -life endeavor. Because I don't know the intimate details of your life. I don't know your struggles. But hopefully, someone does. If no one knows your life, Maybe that's your next step. That's where you need to be exhorted and encouraged and implored. I would want to put my arm around you and, and do everything I could to be kind of an emotional cheerleader pointing you in the direction of you know, having you move towards someone knowing where you're at. Find someone you trust and begin to share your life with them. Open up your life with a few trusted people and talk about the good the bad and the ugly with them. I mean, I've got good, bad, and ugly in my life, and I'm pretty confident that uh, we're all in the same boat together. Again, Jesus was Paul's first love. And because of that truth, making disciples was a life priority. Verse 13, Paul says this, for this reason, we also constantly thank God. And now this is the second time in this letter that he says that we, we're constantly thanking God for you. And he's gonna tell us why he's so thankful for these people. He says, for this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God which also performs its work in you who believe. And that leads us to really our last and our kind of key thought from this passage, and it's this. When Jesus is your first love, 
you hold on to the word of God for what it really is, the word of God. And so what does it mean to accept this book as God's word? Well, first, I think it means that the word of God is your final authority. And because it's your authority, you submit yourself to this book. So when I disagree with this book, who wins? The word of God wins. I submit my life. I bring it under the word of God. I rank my life under this book. Now, in our culture, obviously, that is super counter uh, cultural. I mean, that's like really swimming upstream. I mean, if you look at like the last couple of decades of kind of cultural thought and movement, you would have heard messages like that just kind of pop into your mind, mostly from probably the years of commercials that have just been embedded into your brain. But um, those commercials might have said like your way right away or like uh, obey your thirst or the um, iconic just do it. But when you look at what God's word says and how it kind of interacts with our cult, the cultural messages today, most of what the Bible says kind of is counter whatever we would hear in our culture. The word says, lay your life down, surrender to Jesus, submit your life to him, walk in a manner worthy of God, obey Christ, love God with everything you have and love your neighbor as you love yourself. Whoever saves his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will find it. And so we bring our lives into alignment with what God says in his word. Second, it means that we seek to obey the commands in this book. We aren't just hearers of the words, but we we actually want to do what the word says. And it's really important, again, to realize that we don't obey to get a relationship with God. We obey because we have a relationship with God. The gospel actually becomes a huge motivation for obedience. We are just constantly reminded about how good God has been to us in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And now the fact that we have been given something that is so amazing that it just demands everything we have. And so we seek to obey because we know that what God has for us is best for us. It's important to realize that many, many of the people that I hang out with see the word of God as a killjoy. But nothing could be further from the truth. God's word actually leads us to life. It leads us to the life we were created to live. It leads us to become the kind of people that God intended for us to be. And so again, we seek to obey because we know that what God has for us is best for us. And third, we allow the word of God to shape our worldview. Our worldview is pretty much just the way we view the world. In other words, we agree with God about the world we live in and we begin to think about life in a way that's consistent with how he thinks. And so we agree that with him that the world is fallen, that Jesus is the only answer to the world's sin problem, that heaven and hell are real, that there is only one way to God, and it's Jesus, that all humans are created in the image of God, and because they're created in the image of God, they have inherent dignity. So in other words, all people matter to God. It affects how we think about our sexuality and about sexual identity. 
And the word speaks strongly into social issues like abortion and euthanasia and, and, and human rights. Okay. And so after saying all that, I have to say, I have to say this. It's great to hear the word preached every weekend. But in order to have this book deeply impact our lives at a heart level, we're going to need to do more than just hear the word taught on the weekend. We can't just live off of what we hear on the weekends. And so that means that we need to do whatever we can to get this book into us as often as we can. We need to read it and we need to memorize it. The Bible talks about hiding God's word in our hearts and we need to think about it and chew on it and meditate on it. The, the Bible talks about letting the word of Christ dwell in us richly. And then we need to let the Holy Spirit speak to us through his word. And there's really easy kind of no-brainer ways of doing that today. You can get a Bible app and you can pick a plan and they will like spoon feed you the word of God. So Paul ends this section like this. Verse 14, he says, for you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hand of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews. And I can't help to think that the reason these people were able to suffer well is because they had embraced the word of God for what it really is, the word of God. God's word became an anchor for them in the midst of suffering. And so as we close, what galvanized this church is the same thing that will galvanize our church. Their first love was Jesus. They were captivated by the gospel. The same could be said for Paul. His first love was Jesus. And because that was true, gospel proclamation was always on his mind. Discipleship was always on his heart. And the word of God was embraced for what it really is, the word of God. And so as we close, really, I've got just a couple of application thoughts for you. And what I did is I was thinking about Roman, uh, Revelation chapter 2. And again, if you look at that, it says to repent and do the things you did when you first fell in love with Jesus. And so I went back to what my life was like when I first fell in love with Jesus. And I thought, you know, the, one of the things I did is I read the Bible. And I didn't read the Bible so that God would like me more because there's nothing I could ever do that could cause God to like me more. And I just read the Bible because I wanted to know who God is. And I remember just falling in love with the person of Jesus. Like I thought, Jesus, you're my hero. And so today when I read the Gospels, I'm still just overwhelmed by who this person is. And so we read the Bible to, to learn about who God is. And so I'd encourage you to like, do that. Read the word, not to check a box, but to get to know God more. Second, go, go for a prayer walk. That's what lovers do. They walk and they talk together. And so I went back to like the early days of my life and I was thinking, what I did was I, I just journaled out my prayers and I had to do that because I would be so distracted. And so I just have journals and journals and journals full of prayers that I prayed to God. And so I encourage you to take time and talk with your heavenly father and tell him that you want to rekindle your love relationship with him. And then the third thought I have is kind of like out of the box. 
But it's this, it's to give. See, when you first fell in love with your spouse, you love to pay for dinner and you love to shower her with gifts. Again, another time to kind of give you an elbow jab there. Um, but the truth is, is that when you give, it moves your heart. Jesus said where your treasure is, that's where your heart's gonna be as well. And so we're entering a, a time of year that's pretty challenging it, to not just get swept up in consumerism. And so one, one of the only ways I know to combat that is instead of thinking about what I want, is to change to the perspective of what can I give? Instead of what can I get, what can I give? And so my encouragement to you is give to the Lord. And don't do it because someone's twisting your arm because that's not my heart at all. Do it as the New Testament talks about it. Give as a cheerful giver. And see what it does for your heart. Again, I was thinking back to the early days of when I first became a Christian. And we were, I was so excited about the work God was doing in, this, in the world that I actually went back and I tithed off of money I made over a summer. I went back. It wasn't a lot of money, but it was more about the heart. I was so excited to give to the work that God was doing in this world. And so I don't get a chance to do this very often. And this kind of a, you know, just is something that I just wanted to do. Uh, I wanted to talk about the opportunity that we have to give to what God's doing here at New Hope. You know, we've been in this process of building this new building and we're raising money for that. And I, and I think sometimes people can get kind of their mind twisted with this process and they can think like, hey, this is about like building something that's brick and mortar. But I think it's way more than that. This is about lives being transformed, opportunities for people to come and, and understand the gospel. And so we get a chance to give to what God's doing in this world. And so, again, don't feel like I'm twisting your arm. If you feel that, what I'd encourage you to do is just give somewhere, some, to some organization that mirrors the heart of God. But engage in this God-like activity of giving and see what it does for your heart. Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive. Let's pray. The human heart, Father, is it's a tricky um, it's, a, it's a slippery, it's a tricky, uh, challenging thing to, to think about, because our heart is so easily stuck to so many different things. Our heart is easily uh, lured and moved in so many different directions. That's why we need Jesus. Father, we, we need you to work in us, to help us to return to our first love. I need you to do that in my life. I have other competing loves. I want you to be my first love. And God, I pray that even as we talked about these things, the word, prayer, and giving, you would take something and just burn it into people's hearts, burned it into my heart here this morning. And that we would be able to, again, just trust that, that he who began a good work in us will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thanks for coming. Have a great week. If I haven't met you, I'd love to meet you before you take off.